Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Scott Williams is the Portfolio Manager for 51 Capital's Progressive Global Fund. Scott employs a long-short strategy with a unique activism angle to boot. Combined with his history in stockbroking and as a trader, Scott's experience as an investment process stand in near contrast to my own. Nonetheless, Scott's journey throughout the finance industry and the story of how 51 Capital came to be are fascinating. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Scott Williams of 51 Capital. Scott, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me. 
for those people who might we just provide some context for those people that don't necessarily know of you or know of 51 capital why don't you just give us a quick bird's eye view before we learn more about you and your story yeah so 51 capital we're a relatively new manager uh, we started in april of 2018 mm-hmm. um i used to be a broker uh, moved into the funds management industry and i guess we can go into that in more detail Uh, My business, 51 Capital, is uh, the manager of the Progressive Global Fund, which is a long, short uh, hedge fund, global hedge fund. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much what we do. We've we've had our first year down. We've performed relatively well, around 23%. Um, Nice. You know, we just got to continue doing that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's been a lot of work, a lot of fun, a lot of learning. And as we were discussing before, a lot of, I guess, the things that you pick up along the way and can continually learn from. Mm. Um, and yeah, I appreciate, you know, taking the time and speaking to us. And as I've said, I, I really enjoy the sharing aspect of our industry and, and listening to even other people and other managers. And hopefully, you know, my story helps anyone, I guess, looking for things or interested in the funds managers industry or markets in general. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think you've got a bit of a presence on Twitter and you're on LinkedIn. So if people want to engage with you, that's a, a good way to do it, right? I started um, prior to even getting into broking, I used to day trade. Um, and be part of sort of, I guess, the online network and, and people. And mm-hmm. Twitter wasn't really a big thing back then. Um, so we sort of had been, everyone was on hot copper. And originally uh, we started to actually sort of migrate. A lot of people were going to Twitter because it's quite instant. It's your own thing. You know, you can have a face, I guess, if you want to. Um, and that's, you know, we built it up over time. And I, I stopped using it while I was breaking. And now obviously I, I go back and use it to share a lot. And as I said, I've, I've found a lot of people on there and interact with a lot of people on there. It's very good for um, finding information. And I think if you follow the right people, you can learn a lot from it as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm always trying to follow the follow the good people. And I guess there's also a lot of noise on there as well. Oh, there is, yeah. But like you can curate your own feed, right? And you can get Sound bites of information is a great resource. Okay, let's go back to the beginning for you, mate. Uh, one of the things that I'm always keen to tap into is kind of like where that, that spark for finance and investing came from because it's kind of like a thing you don't really grow up and think, I want to be an investor. You, you want to be a builder or a fireman or something like that. So, professional surfer. Yes, yes <laughs> professional surfer in your case. So tell us more about your upbringing, who influenced you, et cetera. Um, look, it's probably – interesting story and i guess depending on where you cut in but yeah obviously at school i wasn't um all i wanted to do was surf mostly and as i said to you i was sort of uh, i guess destined for a tafe trade sort of job and um, my parents are both teachers so i've had a quite a humble upbringing and never i guess overly exuberant um mm. that desire i guess came from the fact that I, i've always competed and been very like very much wanting to compete and surfing um mm. it's very head-on not so much team um but then i think also seeing my parents not have as much as maybe i perhaps like or i desired and then that probably drove me toward it um when i then you know tried hard at school and i did relatively well um got into university and started studying and i guess at the time i didn't know what i wanted to do um and it was really a way up between shares uh, either investing or property and um I guess the time while I was at uni, West Australia in particular was going through a very big mining boom mm. and a number of friends of mine at university who probably had a bit more money than me were in the stock market and he'd come in and say, look at my portfolio today and it's gone up and I was thinking, wow, you've made more money than me in a whole year. I need to get in on this. This looks good. So mm. um, probably delusional in a way and thinking but that sort of just seeing how easy it was and them doing that sort of probably inspired me to um, – 
want to get part of it and change my degree. And then um, originally I actually was going to go to uni and be a physiotherapist. So oh, right. um, I changed into finance. I actually met the way, the reason I changed was, and again, probably that seeing the dangling the carrot, I was on a surfing trip in Indonesia and we were in the, um, you know, the uh, lower accommodation style. There was probably four on the island that you could okay. say and the superior deluxe, you know, you got all the beer you wanted. Ours probably included like one bintang and, <laughs> you know, we were slumming it in the jungle and I met a guy who was, um, you know, a relatively small amount of people on the island and this guy was in the superior deluxe and he was giving away his beers to us and I was thinking, you know, I was like 18 or 17 at the time and um, thinking, wow, like what do you do? And he's mm. like, oh, I'm a, I'm a stockbroker and I made like, you know, 600 grand or whatever and I'm on an island and I was thinking, I need to do what you do. Like that's, and that I think was really when I came back and changed my degree and um, probably was the heyday of the boom. So I guess making money was relatively easy. Um, you know, and then, yeah, changed the degree and got into finance. And, um, you know, when I guess getting toward the end of the degree, I sort of realized I needed to do work experience and I'm very much a, you know, just pick up the phone and get it done type person. And I rang through the yellow pages. We had those back mm -hmm. then. Um, a to Z to get work experience. So I... Rang A to Z and um, got a work experience at a place called Zurich Securities. Oh, yeah. So right at the last, you know, about 50 no's because it was the middle of the GFC at that point. So, you know, I was calling and saying, can I come in and make coffees? And they're saying, sorry, we're shutting down the office. Like people are not working here anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that was relatively tough. And then, you know, I came in and did work experience, made coffee for two weeks and sort of said, can I keep coming back? And I just went back for about a year or nine months probably um, while I finished my degree doing uh, work experience and, you know, got to learn and, and listen to people. And I think at that point, that was when I started getting quite involved in the forums and learning as much as I could. I was very passionate. I'm a very keen um, person. If you if I find something I like, I'm very keen to find out everything I can. Um, and yeah, started getting into forums and, and trading and MSN chat rooms. And we had sort of, hmm. I met a lot of day traders and people and I really enjoyed that path. And I started down that path and then, um, yeah, eventually, Finished my degree and went to go get a job and um, Kevin Rudd brought that rent resource tax in and all the broking industry collapsed again and went back to the drawing board and trading, uh, eventually ran a conference and yeah, got a got a sort of offer and ended up moving to a broking firm not long after that and that was my start of my career. So you, on your own accord, you went out and you held a, a conference for investors? Yeah, so I used to um, post like a blog and uh, as I said, sort of on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, we used to trade a lot and have sort of, I guess, a network of people. Um, and I had a number of sort of people that I guess mentored me and taught me um, and I wouldn't have been in a position without it. And we, I mean, I wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we sort of set up and there, there'd been other meets in Sydney and Brisbane and Melbourne mm -hmm. and, I, and I'd gone to one or two of them. And we thought, oh, why don't we do one in Perth? And, you know, we posted in the same place and we had sort of around, I'd say, 80 people that came. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really what kicked it off. And I did a presentation on the style of day trading that I was looking at. And uh, the style in particular was the, I guess, one strategy was um, average daily range. So, like, for example, if CBA is going to move a dollar, over the last 20 days, if you know CBA moves $1, um, you want to get 75% of that uh, move on average is roughly what it will do. Mm -hmm. So you want to get half of that. So 25 to 50 cents and you risk 25 cents. So it's quite simple. You know, make double what you risk and then, you know, various triggers that will show you. So if, if it dropped in the morning and it's going to be like like today, obviously the banks have done very well, um, post-election, you know, franking credits, et cetera. Today, if it gapped up, you might have thought, I'm going to short it. So how far down do you want to capture 
in theory, if it moves a dollar, you shouldn't be trying to get $4 out of it because it might only move 50 cents. Mm-hmm. So you sort of would, we'd, we built spreadsheets and things that would measure the, the ranges on various stocks. And then when the triggers would go off, you would buy and trade them. So I sort of, that was the, the discussion, I guess, that we did at the time. Um, and yeah, now, th- now things are very different, but it's always good to <laughs> learn different styles and strategies. Sure. Yeah. I think you, uh, probably one of the first, uh, guests on the show that, we're probably probably mostly focused on trading to begin with. I think we all kind of go through this, uh, I guess, this pattern of our investing or there's this similar undercurrent through most people's journey that is, you know, can we make money for short-term trading? And then you kind of like the front, refine the process and it just gets, it's almost like we get lazier or lazier. We just end up going with I th- I think, long-term um, investing, you know. I think also like is a, a- – with the fun now as well, like there's only so much scale you can do with certain strategies and um, day trading when you like, I mean, if you, if you managed like a billion dollars, it would be almost impossible to do. Mm. Um, and they do those high frequency, you know, algorithms and we use algorithms to execute trades. But I, I chat in a room with um, people who are professional day traders mm. and they, they scout things and they're in and out before I've even had time to look at the, bring up the ticket, you know, mm-hmm. um, and credit to them. And it's just their style and what they do. And there's a sort of, I guess, sense of freedom in terms of you don't have to, you can go home flat without any positions and come back the next day and earn when you want or travel when you want. And, you know, it appeals to people and certain people, it's different strikes for different folks. I know lots of guys that like trading. And for me, I think I've just developed my style over time and I prefer the investment side. Mm-hmm. I like to, I've seen, I've seen a lot more money made being high conviction in positions that, you know, if you get in early and they do well um, and you call it right or you're on the right side of the cycle and you manage your risk correctly, then you can make far more. Yeah. I always I always say, you know, if you look at the BRW rich list, how many day traders are in, the, in there? <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, why don't we circle back to this conference that you did? Because I believe you got a few job offers out of it. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, we, I sort of did this presentation and prior to that, I tried to get into the industry. So, I did my RG146 and the various things post my degree and did the old yellow pages trick again and went through and met everyone and mm-hmm. sort of nothing really going. And yeah, then post that I, so yeah, I got offered a, a job and I sort of thought, well, if I'm getting offered jobs, maybe I should put together a bit of a pack. And I sort of say to, you know, I always try and give back and talk at uni and help people. And um, instead of just going there with a resume, I put together what they wanted to see. So I said, okay, well, what is what are they going to want me to do? They're obviously going to want me to make money so pick stocks, um, you know, build a client book and, and I guess have my goals. So I just made a very brief thing showing some of the trades and stocks that I'd been in and why. And it was very technical uh, analysis focused probably more than anything. But again, as a broking firm, if you can, I guess, trade more, that's how you earn income. So they were more, I guess, keen on that. Or I, I, To be honest, they probably more just looked at someone that brings something different mm-hmm. and was very passionate and very, I guess, didn't stop calling, like, please stop calling us. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I sort of say to people, you've got to be very, you got to live, eat, breathe it, I think. And um, if you're not passionate about it, you'll, it'll never, you'll never get far. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that will say, oh, I wish I could day trade and do that. And if you don't spend the time and do it and, I guess, learn and really get down with it, it's hard to get far ahead. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, I put together that, put together a sort of list of clients and how I was going to build my business and goals like of where I wanted to be in like three, five years sort of thing and, um, you know, first year goals. And I, I think that appealed to people and I, I sort of got a few more job offers and I sort of what ended up weighing it up between two and I, I went to a smaller firm rather than the big firm um, where I just believed I you know, could probably start more advanced. You didn't have to start in the mailroom back office type thing. You could, you almost 
build your own business from earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, as we said, sort of probably take on more responsibility than mm-hmm. uh, was needed. And I guess I've always tried to challenge myself and be do more. Um, and uh, you know, when setting up our business, the, the fund now, I, again, probably naively thought, oh, I could. It's better if I learn how to do it from the start. And you know, you, you very quickly realise it's great to know every aspect of your business or know more about certain aspects of the business. But um, I think ultimately using experts or people is probably better. You probably get a better result having mm. the right people and the right team. And that's sort of where we're at now. You know, I want to build, as I was saying to you, try and find the right people to work within the company as well, uh, work with me and, you know, just make money, have fun every day and enjoy what we do. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, you know, uh, we were talking off air a moment ago and I think when you're an entrepreneur, you kind of have to be a bit naive and just take the plunge, right? You always you know, <laughs> overestimate what you can achieve in one day, right? Uh, so... Always costs more and take longer. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. So take us through, I think, actually, before we get to that, I think a really important um, topic to cover off on is actually the role of a stockbroker because there'll be people listening to this that probably don't know exactly what a stockbroker does, how you're incentivized, how you're remunerated, etc. If you can just, you know, give us the, the 101, the, the 101 yeah. of that. Yeah. Look, I think... Um, it changes and it, the industry's definitely shifted a lot in the last sort of when I first started and, and even to now, it's probably changed a lot and probably getting more regulated. Um, I guess back in the day in particular, if you look much further back, a stockbroker was really the person that you needed to execute trades. So mm-hmm. you had to have a broker to settle any trades back in sort of the 80s. So that, that was sort of, I guess, how the industry was spawned and mm-hmm. um, the monopoly or the gatekeeper to that, y- y- they did very well. Um Ask the people who owned seats on the ASX. <laughs> um, so yeah. as time evolved and the internet expanded and discount broking came in, I think it started to spawn. And then what happened was instead of sort of being all investment banking so much, I think it, it corporate broking started to be a big part of a lot of these companies' business. Now you've seen a big shift. A lot of the, the larger broking firms are probably moving more towards like wealth management, which is, I guess, in line with sort of funds management, but they don't have to perform as much, I mm. guess, or, or they don't pull a performance fee out per se. It's more charge brokerage, charge a fee and offer a different service. And that's probably um, mostly born from the regulatory changes and things that have happened. A broker really uh, provides a service for a client to buy and sell shares and they make recommendations for the client. And I think nowadays it's changed a lot to, to provide advice to retail clients as we were sort of discussing. It's, you know, it's sad because it's becoming harder for them to access a lot of good product and, I guess that spawns the ETFs and discount things, but what do they really own and what, what's behind it? They don't have someone overseeing their portfolio per se. Um, and it may be, as we said, like putting in the hands of experts. A lot of people that you might meet, they'll they'll pay, play the stock market. As I said to you, you can meet someone on the road in a cafe and we'll have a beer with some guy and the next minute he's out buying shares and doesn't know you from a bar of soap, but mm. we'll still do that. So- the broker really would have been the person that you'd call to ask about or something. And I guess it's sort of in a way like asking your barber if you need a haircut type thing, <laughs> if you need to be in something or not. Um, and so the industry's changed a lot and the corporate side of it probably was the part that really a lot of guys used to grow. And when they do raisings, um, so as a broker, you get paid to when they transact, say like 50 basis points to 1% when you buy and sell shares. So if you buy your BHP or sell your BHP. And then if there's a, a cap raising or an IPO, they'll pay a bigger fee. So you might get, you know, broking firm might get so 5%. 
um, which you then split with the house as well. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, I guess, mortgage broking or other broking. The house takes half and the broker takes half or roughly. And um, So you can make a lot of money doing that, right? Yeah, I guess, you, look, you can. Um, but it's definitely becoming harder, I think, and the industry's been squeezed. There's probably been a, a mass exodus of that because the broking side, like why would you pay me for the idea when you could literally do it on your phone while mm. I'm talking to you? You know, I'm saying, oh, buy some BHP. Like, oh, no, I don't need to do that. You could do it yourself, you know. And I guess that relationship part, it used to be a lot bigger. The relationships used to be a lot tighter. Um, and I think it's changed now. It's it's a different industry. And, you know, I always, I think, wanted to shift toward the buy side. And the the corporate aspect of it, I find there's a lot of conflict with, with the broking industry in, in terms of, and, you know, I used to be part of it. Um, I guess you're always needing to sell the next thing and you're offering a product and, you know, it it can become a lot more conflicted, I think, than mm. having to print your performance every month. And it, it's obviously different. And I think, I think to be honest, the funds management side's a lot harder. And it's 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 a different different kettle of fish. I think um, it's a different learning curve. Mm. Um, but I just I like the non conflicted part. And you know, that was sort of I guess the corporate aspect of it. I used to do a lot of that part and be part of that. Um, and it, you know that that really is the part that drives the businesses, and that's what builds your business as a broker, really. Because if I've got a corporate raising and you want it um, for whatever reason, you have to come through the broker. So again, it sort of reinvents that old gatekeeper to the to the market. Um, and then you know people will come in on the deals. So it's about how good the deals are that you do. And then you know we with the fund, it's sort of that aspect of it. I I, I wanted to incorporate that because it, it can be very profitable for investors, and that's sort of our activism piece that we try to do, share the research. But instead of selling and always needing the next product to come, it was born from we find a company that we like instead of the company coming to us and needing capital we could find them and say, hey, I think we could help you um, take mm-hmm. a position in the fund, et cetera, and if we can get options or things for uh, for doing research and sharing it with people and, I guess, capturing less upside on our on our fees, then, um, you know, it's it's fine for us as long as we get compensated for it and our investors make money. That's, mm-hmm. that's the goal, really, to give back to the investors was our whole, you know, the whole premise behind it and um, give them something that they, they haven't normally got. And, Sort of as we discussed a little bit beforehand with that part of the model, it's probably difficult for a lot of people to grasp what happens on that corporate side um, if they haven't come from it. Like for me, it's quite simple because I've done it and been there and seen it and understand it. Um, but I think for the everyday person, they don't actually understand as much or, or what goes on on that side and, and how it works. But if they're making money, they're, they're happy. And like I sort of said to you, I mean, I've seen a lot of brokers and corporate guys make a lot of money um, from like having free leverage in stocks, like from options or um, you know, on vend when you, you uh, like vend an asset into a company and you get huge uplift. Um, they, if you can retain a large ownership in anything really for not a lot of money and it does well, it turns into a lot of capital, I guess, a lot of upside with little risk. Mm. So that asymmetry, it's, it's something most people would never see or get access to and it's very hard to explain but when they see it or you, you witness it firsthand or just dig through some prospectuses of uh, <laughs> companies probably you know sub 10 mil market cap in west australia or, or probably australia in general um you'll probably see a lot of things and oh what's all these performance shares or you know extra options or broker options or things like mm. that so a lot of people don't dig through 180 page prospectus you know, to do that but mm. um the info is disclosed and it's available and you can find it, but it's about also knowing where to look. And that's where we come back to, you know, most most people don't do it for a living, so they don't have to do that stuff. Mm. But um, 
when you do it for a living, that it's expected. Mm. So I think we'll, we'll get back to that activism part uh, throughout the show. But why don't we take the next step in your career? Because uh, my understanding is that you were broken for a while, and then you've decided to take a trip overseas, and then come back. And one thing led to another. You're in hospital for a while. Yeah. So we, um, I left the broke industry, and I guess you know, as I said, I was very passionate post. Uh, sort of school and, and, and uni and got sort of straight into it instead of um, I, I took time off I guess but I pretty much nerded out on my computer and <laughs> learned how to trade or you know excel and things like that and um, I didn't really ever travel a lot and uh, my wife and I got married and we sort of thought you know we'll take take the year off and have a gap year and I was coming back to Perth and and um, I hurt my back some don't actually know how and I herniated my L45 um, disc and I had this extremely painful sciatica down my left leg and I was basically bedridden and, you know, I was quite, I'd never had an injury um, or a serious injury like mm. that. And um, I guess it's very eye-opening and being in excruciating pain. And as we were sort of talking, some of the companies or, or things that like in biotech or things I resonate a lot more because um, I've experienced that pain and you're just knowing what you would do to get out of it. Mm. And, you know, I tried without surgery for months and I was quite lucky in the fact that, I can work off a laptop and, and still trade and I guess um So you were like bedridden or just I couldn't yep. I could not walk. I they my physio would say you have to walk, it's good to try and move and every step would just be excruciating. So we I would get up and do the exercise that I had to do um in extreme pain. And it got to the point where I was, you know, going through like so many Panadol and Voltara and, and things and it got to the point that, you know, eventually I'd went and got an MRI, which I just wish I did earlier. Mm. Um, and they said, you know, this isn't going to get fixed because sometimes they can fix and um, we need to operate. So, um, yeah, when had the microdisectomy, they basically what happens is your disc bulges and it pushes on your um, nerve, causes the sciatic pain running down your leg. Mm. So they just remove that and then mm. pain, wake up and you're pain-free. So I was like, great, let's get back into it <laughs> and um, start doing the rehab and I'm quite a, um, you know, active and get onto it let's just get it done type person as you can tell mm. and um yeah re-herniated my disc i think tying my shoe and uh wow. had to go back in and have another surgery and then that was after the second time it was a lot harder and um the rehab was also a lot a lot harder um and if it goes again it's you know it's a um uh, i need to get it back like a fusion they fuse the discs which i'm not overly excited about no. doing so um, you know, gave up the surfing, gave up the kite surfing, other things, and just just doing different stuff now. And um, but you use that time to yeah research and look. I I sort of a number of my past clients had been reaching out to me and asking if we um, if I was going to be back and, and managing money. And I sort of was not keen to get back into broking. And um, yeah, just managed to sort of think, okay, well, why don't we just get on the phone again and start pestering people and try to find out what what it takes to set up a fund and. Yeah, started doing the calls and as I said, like the value of, I guess, the internet and sharing with people and people that will take the time out to help you and I've always been, you know, if you get helped, you should help others and um, I like to give back as we were talking about mm. education and stuff and, and going back to the university every now and again or, or talking just to give them, I guess, the 101s or the life lessons and, um, you know, a number of people, you know, in the industry and people um, who, I guess, are service providers or things spent a lot of time and helped me get it to a point. And, um, yeah, just managed to naively, I guess, get into it and start the process. Um, spent a lot of time on the phone and, and essentially then 
got to a point where it was getting very serious and you got to do the investor docs and just a lot of things with licensing, legal, the accounting side of it, et cetera. Um, so we, I basically spent, I, I stopped trading much to the um, detriment and upset of my brokers and um, <laughs> yeah, just started to focus on getting getting things right and getting the business launched. And um, I basically stopped trading over the period of, it was around sort of September of 17 through to when we launched, which was about August, uh, April of 18. So during that period, I think it was probably the best period for, it was when Bitcoin was nearly 20,000. <laughs> Every IPO was doubling or tripling. I left a lot of money on the table by not trading at that <laughs> point. And, um, you know, <laughs> but it needed to be done and I, I, you couldn't have the distraction and I'd rather get the business side done right and correctly and mm. the market's always there. I mean, you know. If you don't trade for a week, it's there the next week. Mm. And I listened to an interesting um, thing the other day. On, I think it was on Real Vision. They were talking about you have to realize that playing game or playing poker or other things that you could relate to the market, they stop. The market doesn't. It will continue. And mm. you know, it, it's always there. So I think you're sort of a slave to it, and but you love it. You live it. You have to. You know, as I was saying, check my phone, check how the shares are going, and. Mm. Um, but it's important to, I guess, know and be able to sleep at night. That's, mm. And that's where I said to you, the change from, I guess, trading to being more of an investor, not only the money side, but I think also you know what you're in, you know what you own, you know why you own it. And it's important to be able to be relaxed. You know, if something, if the price changes, sure, it's something that you need to look at, but does it influence exactly why is the business still doing the same thing? And having that longer view, it, it, it smooths out the performance, I think, and your own stress levels potentially okay so i think it's a it's a pretty interesting story and uh i'm going to know why you called it 51 capital well uh, my dad was a history teacher and i've always had a fascination of like world war ii planes and i had another uh, sort of smaller company that just was i guess a share trading vehicle that um was called spitfire and 51 is a p51 mustang <laughs> so i had that bit that um i guess tie in there and then i just wanted to link it through and the so the logo is the propeller uh, mm. sort of i guess you know as i said to you sort of around the flywheel side and the the going to war sort of fighting bit and and to be honest it was more effective it's a passion of ours and we've got a number of you know planes around the office and nothing <laughs> things to look at so that's been um that's sort of the story where it came from and and i guess the other part was trying to make a an email that people could remember um but never Never uh, discount people's ability to get it wrong, um, and <laughs> potentially my fault should have should have made it even easier. But um, no, look, it, it's it's just a, um, I guess a link through to my family and and, and history. Mm. I've, I've always been a big uh, student of history and looking at cycles or looking at past, and in particular financial history. Um, and, and I think you can learn a lot by looking at things like that. So it's sort of a good reminder potentially of you know look back and, and make learn from the lessons from the past and your hindsight will become your foresight. Mm. Yeah, I think that's um, something we can all take on board is just the ability to go back in time and even to study the most recent crises. But, you know, these things have been going on for decades or some sometimes centuries. The tulip mania, we can go back and... Took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so we can go back and we can we can study these thanks to the internet, Wikipedia. It's um, it's good to go back and then also read the headlines from those periods and, and see how timely they are or... Um, you know, it, many of them aren't evergreen. You can uh, you can be sure that uh, the negativity in the headlines sort of dissipates pretty quickly. Ray Dalio's um, book that he put out, I, I found it fascinating. All the headlines that he mm. put from the times, from the various times, it gives mm. you a good insight um, 
into what was happening and just the mindset of people. Mm. I um another funny thing, I don't know if you read well, the AFR used to in the in the physical paper, I don't know if it's in there anymore. I don't really read that or get it online, but there was a cartoon strip, Alex. Mm. So I go back and I've bought like all those from back in the eighties. And it's such an interesting time, like the cartoons of just reading oh, what the people were thinking or the times, you know, through the tech boom and the GFC, you know, the number. It was, it's very interesting. I, it, I enjoy it. It's always interesting to, to see what the, the masthead is, you know, what are they leading with? Uh, it, yeah, it's a t- typically, uh, you know, 99% of it is noise and, and just emotive and you just re- you really need to dig through. And it, it, I think part of successful investing is knowing the difference between what's noise and, and what's valuable too. But, okay, we, you gave us the uh, 30,000-foot view of 51. How did you, one one thing that I'm always curious of when people start a funds management business is how did you fund it and why why was why was managing money so important to you? I think offering people a service that because like you got to remember a lot of clients were probably coming from broking mm. and it's a different model which I guess also people are not overly as used to. You give away that control somewhat and you don't need to tell them every day what what they're doing. So the one thing I think with broking that you don't like is so bad day in the market right the market's off let's say the dow's off like three or four percent you wake up everyone's calling you they want to know about the position or why is this stock dropping and mm. you know what i mean you see so your day ends up being taken away from a lot of the investment side which i enjoy more the finding good ideas looking at companies and you know talking to other people in the industry or, or working out working out the trade as opposed to having to you know, get an individual client or deal with an individual portfolio or individual situation. Mm. It's a different model. And I think that really appealed to me. Um, setting it up, you know, it's been my own uh, burden and cost and continues to be. And I think, yeah, as I said, you've got to love it, right? Mm. And I sort of think to myself, um, you need to get it to a point and you keep reinvesting in the business. And we will continue to do that. Um, you know, I want to employ more staff. And as I said to you, like ideally someone else that can work closer with me, on the investment side, um, we've got people who help with the BDM. Um, I've got an operations, and then we outsource uh, to the external, I guess, parties or providers. Um, so it's about, I guess, trying to build it in a sustainable way, but at the same time, you need to offer to clients uh, a level of security and things. And we've probably taken on more cost and uh, infrastructure and things, try to do it earlier in place um, to try and, I guess, be able to offer people that security um, and that's been a big part of it for me uh, to try and use. I had some advice when I was setting it up to try and use the the best sort of providers that you can because when you get to a point that you want or people that I guess could be a more serious allocator, they'll want to see that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we've tried to do that to the best of our ability and I'll continue to do that. Um, and I think, yeah, to be honest, it's more so I guess being able to offer people something different and that activism thing I sort of always thought – um, if we can give people give people more back, it's it's just a different offering, a different business model. Potentially, it gets some traction, and and you know, so far we've done well with it, and hopefully continue to. I think, to be honest, I just, I love the industry. I love what I do. I find I would do it anyway, if mm. um, regardless. And I think the day you wake up and you you don't want to do it anymore, that's sort of when you need to look in the mirror and and whether you are doing the right thing by the investors. It's not so much the the dollars in it, it's probably more so the the passion and ability and want to help, want to give back, you want to do more. Um, and I think when you lose that, then you'd stop. But I always joke, you'd be dragging me out of the office when I'm like 80 by my fingernails, <laughs> <laughs> clawing along the ground. But um, 
yeah, I think that's probably my view of of the of that. Mm, great. Yeah, passion is one thing that you can't teach, and so it's um, just innate, right? You just have to have it, and it seems you do. So let's talk more about your investment process. Uh, global, long, short. Uh, I've read a fair bit of your stuff with regards to being on the long side, you know, buy and hold, uh, but I haven't read as much on the short side. So I'm interested to know, firstly, why you do shorting. Like, what what is the purpose? Is it risk uh, management for the portfolio? Is it on, you know you want to profit from individual security? You want to add alpha? Why are you shorting? And maybe if you can give us some examples. I think I read one piece about um, childcare centres or something. Yeah, of that nature. So I guess um, working on the broking side and being long only, it was. Uh, the, the market goes down sometimes as well. So <laughs> when we set it up, I, I originally thought I don't want to not be able to invest in something because you know it's in another country or it's you know I think it's overvalued. I think it's going to make money on the downside. Um, typically, we use it for hedging. So um, markets go up a lot more than they go down. You know, I think we're probably coming into a cycle. To be honest, the other part was I really thought we were very late in the cycle, um, and I do believe that the market probably will fall for the next say eighteen months, two years, and then be relatively flat and choppy and hard. Um, so, you know, having a product where we could, and, you know, my own capital is in the fund as well, um, having a product where I can profit during those downtimes, it, it, it does make a big difference. We primarily use it, I guess, to hedge our long, long exposure. Um, the longs, as I said, will go up more. The way we sort of structure the portfolio, and we, we've spent much more time on this just recently in, in terms of our messaging. Um, and and we'll, I mean, you're always evolving and always trying to improve it. But essentially, the way we structure it is we, we probably have high conviction positions that we will put between four and eight percent in uh and you might have say four to eight of those um depending on market conditions those really are the ones that you believe the asymmetry uh so the risk to the downside is much smaller than what we'll make to the upside Mm -hmm. um and then how we get to those we we typically will have a thesis on a position so you you might tell me oh scott xyz is cheap for whatever reason we then will go away and work out okay What's the market think about that trade? Um, we tend to find that we're quite, as I said, I like cycles and we tend to be sort of counter-cyclical. You want to be at the bottom on the way up. Counter-cyclical, quite contrarian, I guess, in terms of if if there's a stock that's deep value, normally the market's missing something. Um, and that mispricing when it gets corrected is where you generate a lot of return. So what's the downside from the position? And then we typically will dig down into the actual company. So I'll go and look at what you're telling me and does it, is it validated? Is it true? What has the company done? Are they doing what they said? Um, and then, you know, then I'll look at the actual position and weigh up, okay, how much risk do we want to take on this? So the bigger exposure positions, we know very well. Um, you know, I guess, especially with the smaller ones, you want to talk to management, you want to know the business inside out, um, know what you own, you know, you want to sleep at night. And then if it's smaller things, um, you know, like our hedging on the short side will typically be much smaller positions. So mm-hmm. if they swing against you, you're not it's not going to really move the needle as much. But if the market all drops, like as it did the other day, the bigger positions may fall, but the the shorts offset the drop. So you end up capturing less downside and you get more of the upside. So I guess when you look at typical long short funds, the short book doesn't really generate a lot of alpha for you. Um it's more to hedge the volatility in the portfolio. So we we probably do that more so than try to find shorts. We do have one short, which is Tesla. Um, that's our probably biggest short. I just thought that looked extremely overvalued relative to the business having no moat. 
Um, and, you know, when he tweets out 420 takeover, it's sort of the <laughs> risk was to the 420 and yet, you know, 60 bucks, say, from uh, 350-ish or 360. Um, and the downside's, you know, probably 300 bucks or something, for example. Um, again, asymmetric risk reward to the downside. Typically shorting, um, as I said, the positions aren't as big. Uh, the gem posts that I did uh, in particular- GA education? Yeah, GA education. We we're talking about, I guess, the difference between the West and the East. Um, and I guess you just saw it with the election. Um, the West Coast has been probably in somewhat of a, business conditions have been extremely bad since iron ore fell, which I think was around that 2012 time it started to really turn down. And we, we had in broking, we were in a lot of resource companies and we actually shifted away and started focusing on tech businesses before everyone else really, when the downturn happened. So we did quite well through that period. Um, and I guess, as I said, it's about being counter cyclical. So WA went through a really hard time and, you know, as I said to you, I sort of mentioned off air, but a lot of people I know and, and, and a lot of people in WA have experienced negative equity in their property. Um, they have, you know, seen businesses go under, uh, you know, for lease signs through the whole of, I guess, West Perth and Perth um, mm. and in outer office areas. So there's been a lot of slowdown. Like, and I, I use an anecdotal story Um Someone I know, like a JB Hi-Fi, for example, they were doing, um, say, 900 grand a week. And then all of a sudden, the average sales dropped from 900 to 450, 500. You know, that that drawdown mm. in terms of people aren't spending as much. They've got negative equity in their home. The wealth effect turns down. I think the East Coast has had the opposite. They saw that huge boom. And we had that in WA. I mean, I had guys working, the friends of ours that go work on the mine and get, you know, work half a year and get $200,000 to- mm drive a truck or something, you know, and that level of wealth and spending goes through the economy a lot. And when it turned off, very quickly changes. And as I sort of mentioned, the election side, I think they go after housing and people have been through a lot of pain in like WA and Queensland. And I think that has impacted or impacted the result. And that's why you probably saw the swing. Um, and so the G8 thing was sort of of the same ilk that People don't have jobs, you know, unemployment rises. They don't spend on childcare as much. Mum's at home or someone doesn't have a job. It's much, it, it, it disappears. They don't have as much and they, the vacancy rates uh, start to rise a lot. So the East Coast as well, there was a lot of build. And um, again, it's it, they're not big positions. So it was more just something interesting to say, hey, if you look West, you can almost see what may happen in the future. Um mm. And it's, I, I try to bring my investing style back to if you can see it or feel it and it's something simple, it probably is going to work. Like, I mean, we were talking about Amazon before, you know, getting my earphones the next day. Like, wow, that's a pretty impressive business. Um, and I guess the context on that story was that when we spent time in New York, we'd used Amazon Prime and I put my earphones through the wash from the gym and <laughs> um, the next – I ordered them that night on Prime and the next day the guy's at the door as I was walking to go to the gym and I was amazed. That, that's how quick it is. But that's a great business, you know, mm. and that's something you think, wow, is that listed or what do they do? And those sort of ideas come along all the time and that's sort of, I guess, part of the way I, I try and find ideas or mm. listening, watching, seeing life, you know, go by and, and try and find those ideas. Mm. On that, you've got a pretty com compact team, right? How do you allocate your time and resources? Like, how do you know? For me even, I, I find it difficult to manage my time effectively when it comes to research. Yeah, it's it's a... Uh, a lot of work um, and I guess you know I've got an operations person now internally which um, 
I just wish I did that earlier. Mm. Um, there's a number of things, I guess, with funds management. And that's a question you, we probably come into a lot. People will say, well, who does all the upside? And there is a lot to running the business and that's not my core competency. I would rather be told what we need to do or they need to say, okay, we need to cut spending or do this or do that, as opposed to me having to run it. I prefer to spend time looking for those ideas, doing the work, speaking to the people, um, coming up with those or checking on the theses or coming up with a thesis on a company or a a thematic and doing the work. That's sort of what I prefer to do. Mm. Um, So allocating time is definitely... It's, it's very difficult. And as I said, we sort of use resources outside of us to monitor the portfolio. Like, as I said, things move or if they hit certain prices, people, it's very simple for a broker to execute a position for us. Um, but I guess my time and having to look at things is important. And I guess the key man risk is something that you come into a lot. And I also say, you know, I, I look at Berkshire Hathaway, for example, how many people are there for for Warren and Charlie alone? You know, and, and what happens is that business changes. If they left, how many people won't want to own the stock anymore? You know what I mean? And and I guess it's similar with funds management. You're there for that person and their their overview or oversight. And I think you get to a point that you get to like so big that it doesn't matter. Um, but ultimately, I think our size and like any manager say sub five hundred million, it's, it's probably important to have that oversight and people. So that's something that we come into probably a bit, and um, um, it's something we want to address. And the next part is really to build out that investment team and have more infrastructure around myself. And and I guess as I sort of said to you, finding the right people and people that I guess have that similar view of the world, or but can have a, bring a different aspect. Mm. Um, as I was sort of saying, I think you know the macro side and the the finding the the thematic. I really like that cyclical side and that looking at okay, where do I want to be or what's a sector that's going to do well and why, and have a trend going with with me, um, and then having someone that can help dig down into companies and dig through the weeds and find you know what those those really diamonds in the rough, so to speak. Um, that would be that'd be great. That's the next next part for our business that we want to grow. So, would you say? When you get these opportunities coming to you, you're using more of a top-down filter. So you're looking for these themes first and foremost, and then you start with the bottom-up approach. Or how do ideas normally come to you? <laughs> they come through a number of, I guess, different places. Um, I try not to. I don't like to box, as, as sort of said with the way we set up the fund. I never like to box myself into. I won't look at that because of this. Um, I tend to like to look at everything and so many times you will, I guess you could miss so much and by boxing yourself in, you get too stuck in your ways and I like to try and remain open and challenged. So, I mean, I'm just thinking of different examples of companies. There could be things that come along that's a a corporate activity or an IPO or, um, you know, a theme behind something that's, you know, attractive or you can see a good return to be made from that. Um, So I don't like to discount and say no before we've taken a bit of a look. Um, and it is important, I think, if, if, if you want to have a basket and we want to allocate a larger portion, as I sort of said, if we're going to allocate a larger portion, it's very important to know where you are at with the cycle and also what the market thinks in general about that position. Um, you want to know the downside risk, mm. I guess. So you can't measure your return without knowing how much risk you're going to take, I think. So it's important to look, where am I wrong? Like, where am I going to get screwed on this trade? Um, yeah, and I look at, and as I said to you before, I think 
like one thing that we've done a lot of work on is uranium. Um, you know, I think that's extremely asymmetric. It's bottom of the cycle. The market probably isn't, you know, there's still doubters and people that don't believe there and the work that I've done on it, it. And, you know, as we said, it's sort of like Twitter and there's fantastic community of people that share information that is very valuable. Um, mm. And just, you know, you a lot of people quite open. You can reach out and talk to people and, and I've done that a lot and learned a lot and probably, you know, I think, I think that position is very interesting like in terms of the asymmetry, the mm. risk reward on it looks looks very good mm. so that that particular trade talking and just, i'm just giving you a bit more of an example around that i have a rule that if and you know i guess you build up a network over time i have a rule that if uh, i get told to look at one company or one thing from two people i'll always go and do it so you know i had a guy that was banging the table and <laughs> you need to look at uranium and i was like thinking nah mate uranium's done like you know mm. but and i remember coal uh, would have been about 2016. I remember the same thing happened with coal. And, you know, Whitehaven was about 40 odd cents and we, you know, bought shot the stock in it and probably sold it far too early. But, <laughs> um, you know, those those sectors can be, can turn. And I, I feel like uranium's at that point. And, and then the next guy sort of said to me, hey, have you looked at uranium at all? And I thought, no, but you're the second person to mention that. I probably should. Mm. And then I did it and I went back to the first guy and said, why didn't you tell me to look at uranium? And he goes, what do you mean? I told you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think when you dig and do some work on it, it's um, it's very interesting. It's what I like to look for, risk do, risk in my favour. Do you ever, when you get these recommendations or these these tips, if you like, do you ever uh, assess the uh, the tipster as well? Do you ever think? Always. <laughs> um, as I said, you, you very quickly build up a good uh, network of people. Um, as I said, like if a, a fund manager or a buy side person brings me research, it probably goes to the top of the pile, we would get hundreds of you know stock recommendations or information or things every day um it's it's so much noise and i i I think it's about filtering it out and trying to find those core ideas and you don't have to be with the crowd i tend to find the best ideas i've ever been in always away when when you start to get pitched from the guy who didn't believe it's probably time to start thinking about selling i think the simplest rules in investing are very true and crowds typically don't make the most money. It's better to be counter-cyclical. Um, so, you know, I try to focus that and I guess you've got to be counter-cyclical, but you've got to also be right um, and you can't be too early. Like, I mean, just on the uranium, for example, I mean, back in sort of like 2014 and 15, people were probably thinking that was the bottom and then it halved again. Mm. So is it the bottom now? It looks pretty likely, but, you know, potentially time will continue to, to drag out. Maybe it takes longer, probably does. Most of the commodity cycles do, but any supply-demand deficit, um, and being from WA, we've tended to trade a lot of commodity <laughs> cycles. Um, any supply-demand deficit, and uranium is particularly interesting that the incremental cost of production is nearly double the price of the current spot price. It's unsustainable that it can last at that level if demand remains steady or is it growing, and it is growing. Um, so that was sort of the context. You need to think, well, is this a dying industry and could it fall further? You know, it, it, unlikely. It's very hard to see it not going to at least $50 a pound spot. So it's very asymmetric, but it's just that time mm-hmm. and waiting. And unfortunately, we have to print numbers every month. So sometimes it's, you know, it, it will move against you. But ultimately, I think, you know, you need to have a vision. You need to have a longer term game. And in the short term, you can hedge off downside using short selling or other trading strategies that we try to do. So remove volatility ideally and capture upside from good good thematic trades mm-hmm.
I'd like to talk more about on a security level basis now. And you've written in the past, uh, you've talked about moats and one of the companies, uh, which probably is probably a good segue into the more activism role that you, you take on at the fund. Uh, you've talked about moats and, and why they're important. And um, perhaps I think the best way to deliver this message and deliver the um, the idea behind this activism piece is to use an example. So perhaps you can talk about how you found a company when it's worked well uh, and then maybe as you go through that, like why the moat is important to you and, and, and why you know finding companies that are competitively advantaged plays a role in your investing. Definitely as you, I guess, build positions over time or find companies, it's, it's vital to make sure that they can remain competitive and they can have a advantage over someone else coming along. Um, and just like as an example, like potentially like Afterpay, you know, it's a great business and it's an Australian success story and it's done very well, but do they have a strong moat in terms of, you know, now there's a split it or zip and, and, and what stops other people competing and coming in? And I guess same with Amazon in a way, like does it have a moat and potentially that's its infrastructure and other things. So it's important to dig down and look what makes that business uh, strong and what's going to remain, I guess they don't have to compete on price and margin. Biotechnology and uh, healthcare is particularly interesting that you have patent protection and um, you essentially run a monopoly. So it's very difficult to get a product through to market, but should you get there, you have a window without competition. Mm-hmm. Um so the example that was, uh, you know, our activism piece, as I sort of mentioned, we wanted to find businesses where we thought we could add value, um, take a long-term position on the company, share our research, like buy-side research. Um, we, you know, we dig very deep in when we do those. Um, and then, you know, if we, if we do that with the company, introduce them to other fund managers and other other people or our investors and share that information, um, the options that they give, give us that upside should we get the call correct. Um, so, so just to pause you for a second there. So for listeners' benefit, you would go to a company that you've already looked at or you're looking at and you would say, this is who we are. We'll do our research on you and we're willing to publish that research. Yeah. So we will buy the position anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a matter of, you know, once we're in the stock, it's like, well, hey, if you sign a mandate with us, we can actually buy more because we will get to know the company and do so much more work with them even more. Um and I guess it's a bit of a selling point for them, but then we can also do work that we can share with others and bring the story to more people. Companies, especially sub, and typically they're sub 100 mil market cap businesses, they want to find new investors and they go to brokers or other places, but they always want to do a capital raising or a corporate deal. And um, it's quite hard, I guess, to find that sort of offering of someone who isn't just selling something for the hell of it. Like we bought that stock. I like your company. I think you're doing great. I think you're undervalued. I think I can introduce you to people. I think I can help you. Um, but, you know, if we, we do this and I spend a lot of time and effort doing it, as we said, time is precious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want to get compensated and, and give it back to our investors. So we, we negotiate an options package. Exactly. So if they went to a broker, this would be exactly what happens. They would say, hey, we'll write research for you and take you on roadshows and do all these things for you. Um, but, hey, we want to get paid 10 grand a month. We want uh, options. We want a you know, retainer. We want first access to cap raisings, et cetera. Um, and they negotiate a package with the company and, you know, they go from there. So it's a similar thing, and it, but we just say, we don't want any of the money. We just want the options. We want to align our goals with you. We will buy in the screen. We'll buy the stock on the market. We will publish notes and we'll help you, like, I guess, tell the story. As I said, when 
if I maintain a good track record, and that is vital to us, is building that brand up and only focusing on deals. We are a fund manager first. This is a separate, I guess, cherry on top, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Fund manager first, we will buy that stock anyway. If they want to do this deal with us, um, we will you know, work with the company with their long-term. We have a view. If we put publish research or do anything like that, I'm typically in the stock for a long time. We're not thinking about the short term. I'm looking on that longer term you know, horizon, three to five years. And that's why it's important in finding a business with a strong moat who you know, is has that asymmetric upside potential and it's not a pump and dump mm. um, or things like that. that. So it's very important to find those. It's very hard to find those. Um, you know, as I said, we published it on a, on a company called Paradigm and we had a lot of inbound like, oh, hey, can you do that for us? And, and unless it's an investment that we want to make, we don't do it. Um, so it's very important to maintain that mm. brand and build a good network of people that value and follow what we do. Um, and does does working so closely with the company, does that, I imagine that gives you a lot more exposure to operations or, or things of that nature. So where you can actually look under the hood and mm. have time with management because sometimes it's scarce, you know, trying to get time with management. Yeah, it's very tough sometimes. And I look, I do think that being a fund manager, we, we get a lot more ear time mm. and uh, air time with, with management or, or co- allow ability for context around, you know, you go on mine site visits or you go and visit um, production facilities and talk to it, ex- like experts in the field or ask for introductions to other parties or their service providers. Like, can I check that your providers are happy or they're, you know, what you're telling me is true. Um, so that level of, I guess, granularity that we get, it's part of the job and it's um, what we've done and always, I guess, breaking is they get that sort of view under the hood as well as opposed mm-hmm. to being a retail investor. Um, and essentially, you know, that's our job. So um, it is good and, uh, you know, we put things in place, I guess, to make sure that you're always remaining on the right side of that and, and there's certain rules. So, you know, Chinese walls, so to speak, and, and being out of the market. If we're helping them with announcements or anything like that, if they ask our opinion, you know, we'll say we need to go behind the wall. We're not going to be active in the market. You know, we'll help sort of, I guess, guide the message to market and and how they should present to companies and fund managers. I mean, we see, you know, hundreds of companies every year. Um, You know what a good pitch looks like. You know how to get another manager's attention. Um, So a lot of companies that come from, they're either experts in their industry, they've come from, you know, mining engineering background or a geology background or a, you know, a tech company or a bank or they've come from somewhere where they don't have to or they haven't been exposed to as much finance. And I think having a good advice, as we said, you know, using experts or people, mm. um, I'd like to think that we know what a good pitch sounds like. If I see a company, I could see 10 companies and the ones that know how to get your attention will get you to look and do more work on it. Um, as you said, time is very scarce. Mm. So you need to stick out you need to be something that that oh hey that looks really interesting and paradigm was that for me i mean i sort of said we set up the fund time was very busy i met them and i was very you know probably just flicking through the presentation and and being probably ruder than i normally would be but wanting to okay interesting that's fine okay what's this okay what happened here okay cool 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 hang on what's this and then looking at the data that they had already got published um and, you know, not against the placebo, but looked very, very good in a very big market and very cheap market cap, like 30 mil, probably sub 30 mil when I first find it, found it. And, um, you know, it caught my attention and I just, it, it grabbed me. I just said, you know, this is amazing. Like your drug is reducing pain to half in people with osteoarthritis and it's safe. 
I need to do more. And then I was just fascinated the rest of the day. I was on the phone to you know, chemists and doctors. And then mm. the rest of the weeks and months after that, you know, patent attorneys speaking to people that have used it, the people treating it, doing a really deep dive and just thinking this looks really good and, and sort of saying to them, I think, you know, they were upset. They'd been let down, I guess, in the, the getting other people to look at the company and it's quite difficult. And, um, you know, we, I said to them, I think we can help and we did a deal with them and managed to bring other funds and other high net worth people into the register and help the business. And now it's, you know, fully funded and the market caps uh, about 100 and say 80 million, uh, 80 mil cash, so about 200 mil EV. Um, you know, it's gone up significantly from where we bought it around sort of say 30 cents we started buying. It's a dollar fifty ish today. Um, you know, I think it probably has a lot more to run. They've passed their trials now. It's de-risked. Um, so the next trial is the bigger one, and if it gets through, it'll get to market. And once you're uh, got a moat and no one else, if it, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people have osteoarthritis and are mm-hmm. in pain. And I, I myself, being through that with my back, resonated that there was no amount of money I would I would have paid anything to make that go away. Like just get it to go away. Um, and I think that's much the same with osteoarthritis. It's you know, incurable. You end up with surgery and replace hips or knees or live with pain every day. And you know, it's, it's a misery. And I think, you know, I know people in like my gran or others that have osteoarthritis and it's a terrible disease and it's progressive. It only gets worse. Um, and to listen to stories of people getting their life back, I could, it resonated with me that, oh, wow, like you don't have to wince going downstairs anymore. Like that. I like that part of it. I like the helping people. It was great. And um, yeah, we you know have done well out of the stock and hopefully they pass the next trial and gets registered and they have a product and can help lots of people around the world. And as a result, we, we hope we benefit from that as shareholders in the company and our investors will as well. Mm. So just to round this out for listeners, because you did this work on them earlier on, you got um, given these options effectively uh you put them into the into the fund for your investors so you don't keep them they go into the fund they go all back to the investors so if i was broking and i did the note with them and we did that you know we'd work out the value but there was circa about say 1.1 million dollars in my pocket um (laughs) as opposed to now we've given that to our investors much to the detriment of my my wife's happiness um (laughs) but uh no no but that was the, the whole premise of the business you know if you give back more and our investors make more money, they'll give more to us and they want to be invested with us and they, they agree with what we do. Um, mm. And hopefully over time, you know, and that'll ideally keep keep adding and building our performance and allow us to, to make more for our investors and give more back. So, you know, hopefully the business model continues to work well and, you know, hopefully we can continue to find good businesses that will do that. But as I sort of mentioned, I've, I've seen it happen on the broking side and, you know, I was a beneficiary of it myself. But... The level of upside you can make from extra leverage or options or, or, or position that you have and essentially get given or or it's you know very very cheap to buy very cheap exposure if the company does well it's very hard to not make money from those um so you know it, i guess it's just about giving back and you know we we just give it back to our investors and hopefully we can continue to do that mm. i suppose uh i, I- when I saw it, I didn't really understand it because I wasn't from the industry. Do you do you ever get any like pushback from people that say you know don't understand it or yeah, I mean, worry I, about it in terms of being like the Chinese walls and things like that you mentioned? Um, I guess that that side's probably more on the corporate side. The research note, obviously, we spend a lot of time doing. It's probably no more or no different to what a broking house would do. Um, or any sort of I guess research. It's what we do anyway when I find a small company. Probably not to the same level because I'm 
obviously publishing it for others. My own notes are probably a lot more sloppy than what gets published. <laughs> um, but I'm the only one that needs to read those. So I guess, as, as I said, you know, the business model probably sounded easier in my own head, a bit naive and thinking that people would understand it. But I guess they don't also understand the level of what happens behind the scenes. Mm. It's probably maybe like the politics in a way. People don't potentially understand all the inner workings of what happens or how things happen. It's just what you see um, and how, how deep you want to look. So... Um, probably, to be honest, yes, less understanding. Probably some people think, oh, well, you know, they got paid for this or whatever. But, you know, if I publish the note anyway, um, we've got a position. Like, of course, you know, we are in the stock. We, I think everyone has a, an agenda or something. Mm. Um, but it's, we, we try to remove those conflicts. I try to say, you know, we've done this and I've given it to our investors. You want to be an investor in the fund and get them? You can come in. You know, if you're a wholesale investor, you can come in. Mm. Um, yeah, and we'll continue to do that. That's it, it's not like I did it, kept them all, mm. put the fund in, or something. You know, we've we've tried to act honestly, act act ethically. I've said to you, um, sort of off air, I was saying, I just think our industry gets a bad rap sometimes, and there's a lot of bad things that do go on. I'm I'm not doubting. You know, I see it every day on the market. It's just about being a good person. I think just try and do the right thing by people, have mm. fun while doing it, and you know, try not. Try not worry too much. There's enough things to worry about. Yeah, there is. Um, let's zoom out a bit and talk now, as we come towards the end of our conversation, talk more about um, the macro view that you formed more recently. So I, I read a note and uh, it's pretty pretty detailed from you. You know, as we look at the world kind of through this lens of no QE, no quantitative easing, um, central bank debt, mm. all the rest of it. And then uh, so I was if you could provide some color on where you see, I suppose, that big picture thematic over the next you know, three to five years, but then also maybe make it relevant to an Australian audience and, mm-hmm. and where, you, where you see potential weakness in the Australian economy. I guess, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, and I joke with that because I probably was saying when we saw iron ore uh, back in like 2012 coming off and you could see the economy weakening in the West, um, I was very much of the view that property was going to go down. Um, and in Perth, we were correct, but the city of Melbourne and you know, the East Coast continued to flourish. And now I think that's also changed. Um, but in terms of the central banks and quantitative easing, as I said, I'm you know, probably counter-cyclical. And it's a, it's a matter of probably if, not so much when. But the level of debt out there now, and I mean, I just use the US as an example. They are at record low unemployment. Um, you know, extremely low, the economy is doing well, yet they run a budget deficit and it's financed from the central banks. And, you know, I just sort of sit back and the other day, just when the market fell recently a few percent and you turn on Bloomberg at night and I'm, I'm watching the TV and they're like, oh, when's the central bank stepping in? I'm like, hang on, we're in one of the longest bull markets in history and probably one of the biggest. And yet the market can't drop 2% without them calling central banks need to intervene. I just think that that is such a sight into what is been propping this market up. And when it changes, and you saw it in Q4, central banks were starting to tighten uh, or, or quantitative tightening, not quantitative easing, talking about raising rates, doing it too fast, and Trumpies, you know, flying off the handle on Twitter. <laughs> the market got decimated and that liquidity coming out of the market just killed it. And they were trying to sell down their treasury uh, book uh, and essentially what, you know, when you sell them the price of interest rate goes up um, and they couldn't do it. They can't unwind it. So they've sort of really painted themselves into a corner and it's just, it's very difficult 
especially as an asset manager and in particular thinking about the potential ramifications of what will happen. Probably one of the more out there views that I have and, um, you know, I said I try to look at things simply and try to think about it, um, you know, and maybe it's counter to what a lot of people think is I think the US dollar is interesting. And I think there was an interesting uh, piece published. It was the front cover of, I think it was Bloomberg monthly or weekly or whatever they do. And it was a inflation is dead is the headline. And inflation has been non-existent. But the only way that these central banks that I can see get out of this debt is by printing money, essentially. You can, if, if things get worse and the US goes into recession, that deficit's got to get even bigger. Who finances it? It's selling treasuries. And if no one's buying them, and I mean, now China's talking about unwinding their treasury book. If you know, and, and just look at the Australian property market, China is the biggest buyer of US debt. If that changes, it's like here, Australian consumers are trying to get credit from the banks. When the credit tightens, property or asset prices fall, property prices fell. Um, so I just try and look at it simply in that if they're annoying their biggest lender and they're not going to buy your debt, hey, we're not going to do this anymore for you. Um, and this, you know, era of protectionism that's rising up. And I just think that the only way that it's going to happen, people at some point will realize, hey, what is the value of this piece of paper I'm holding? And I'm not a big Bitcoin person or anything. I never got involved in that. But I do think gold will be a massive beneficiary of that. And we've got a bit of exposure toward gold. I mean, it's a scary prospect to think about currency wars and currency um, changing dramatically in terms of valuation. Where do you go? And, you know, I sort of thought about it myself. Like, where do you hide? You know, Japan, the central bank owns, you know, 75% of the stock market or whatever it is. Um, you know, do you go to... Uh, Brexit, I mean, look at the pound. Can you go there? That's probably going to get harder. Euro, ugh, I mean, they're probably, how many, how many, uh, <laughs> I mean, Germany's basically in a recession. Where else are you going to go? The rest of them are far worse. I don't know. It's just, it becomes quite a hard question. You're not obviously going to go into the Chinese currency or anything like that. And so it's quite a difficult question as to where you hide. And I have to think that the yellow metal is probably going to be where a lot of big funds, and I'm talking, you know, the the larger companies and, and uh, uh, not so much companies, but the um, like central banks. And you're seeing Russia and China buying more bullion. I, I, I just feel that the value of the the actual dollars, people may start to worry about it. And I, I you know, I did another post and things, and we went to Argentina at Christmas time. You know, and they've mm. obviously, you know, it was a cheap holiday, and part of the reason <laughs> I thought of going there. But the currencies devalued so significantly. I, I looked on TripAdvisor, and it was such an interesting thing to look back at the menu just over the last year and how much prices have changed from inflation. And to think the Western world hasn't experienced inflation and, uh, you know, certainly not in my generation in a way where it's a concern. It is probably one of the most scary and detrimental things to uh, value and, and, and I guess puts a currency and puts a country into crisis um, that I just think is being overlooked. And people have become so complacent to central banks stepping in and, you know, Oh, shouldering the burden, but hey, it's a burden, and at some point, I think the you know comes home to roost, and people wonder what are the value of these dollars I'm holding. Very out there, you know, thing, and I, I, I'm certainly not advocating it's going to happen tomorrow, but potentially something that will happen in the next few years. Hey, I mean, I was calling the property since about 2012 or 13. <laughs> you know, you got to get it right sometime. But um, how far does the can get kicked down the road? I think. And, Something to, to think about over time. Okay. And how about closer to home here in Australia? So you, I mean, the implications of that would be pretty dire, right? I mean, it's, we are very much linked to China 
and I think what you're seeing now with the trade wars and stuff, I I think the Chinese are going to – I do think – I mean, I've said for a while that they'll dump their US treasuries because they're going to have to bring money home and defend their own uh, – or prop up their own economy. And um, I just can't see how they don't do that. And I, unfortunately, I think if China goes bad, Australia is going to get really bad. Um but it's so difficult to time that. And I know people have been trying to do it for years and blowing up. And I, I'm certainly not advocating that. I think, you know, it's how it's positioned. But um, it's definitely something I look at. And I think when the signs start to appear, it's something that we would probably move on quite quickly. And it, it's about having that those sort of – the things that can keep you up at night at the forefront of your mind and just at what point could that be a reality? And, you know, people oh, take the tinfoil hat off your head type thing. Um but it's just, I think it's important to always look at the risk and, and weigh up what is happening in the world and could those things happen. Um, it's just, yeah, a way to view it. So in Australia, look, I don't think property is going to be a place. I, I think the generation has seen huge wealth built in property. I struggle to see that generating a lot more return uh, or the same return as what it did in the past. Um, probably becomes more nominal. Um, but, yeah, very difficult. Hence why the Global Fund wanted to be able to find other businesses in other countries if, if we wanted to, mm. if the opportunity's there. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, and obviously being long and short, you have the ability to to express your views pretty quickly if and uh, if and when things do go awry. Here. It's very difficult to make money in a down market, I can tell you, because even, I mean, you've seen it recently, the market's bounced massively from the lows in December. Mm. And, you know, it can be a drag on performance as well, but... It's never as easy as uh, as we all think. No. Okay, mate. Uh, end of the conversation or thereabouts. How can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, so, I mean, you can subscribe. I, as I said, I used to write a weekly note, but it's uh, monthly with the fund. Um, and I try to put more information in there as to how we're positioning or what we see in the world. Um, so that's just at our website, which is just 51capital.com, mm-hmm. um, the words. And I'm also on Twitter, uh, which is at Skilliams, which is Scott Williams. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'll put a link to both in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, sure. Anyway, yeah. And last question, if you could go back and tell younger you one thing about finance, money, or investing, what would it be? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, assuming young Scott would listen, <laughs> he would probably first ask, tell me all the best stocks that over the last 10 years and uh, prove to me that it's right and then whether he listens or not. No, I think, to be honest, probably thinking in um, – Changing the way you think from or detaching yourself from the money side is probably important and thinking more in basis points or, or percentage points risk. Um, that would probably be a big a big thing, I think, when you detach yourself from it, it becomes a much different because there's always someone bigger or, um, you know, has more than you, I guess, and it's quick to probably analyse things easier in percentage points. Um, you know, I'd say that and probably starting earlier and probably also, you know, focusing on, other things like I was sort of saying to you about super funds or looking mm. at environments, having having a long-term goal and, you know, reverse engineering it to get to that point and, and what's the most effective way and, and things to do it as opposed to getting older and not having that. So sort of tried to learn from others as much as I can and, yeah, hopefully we've given it back a bit today. And uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, great. Mate, I appreciate you uh, taking time out to come and meet me. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers, Scott. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.